Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Prashan. I teach film studies and English literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the fall of 2021 on using your own voice in academic writing. Over the decade or so of teaching um, that I've, I've had in my career, I've noticed a gulf between the way that my students write when they are writing for, say, an email to me or for one of their forum posts in our discussion forums and the way that they write when they hand in a academic essay. The language that they use when they write for me as their prof or for their classmates in a forum discussion is clear, it's direct, it isn't always as concise as it could be, but they realize that they are ultimately writing to communicate and they want to get those ideas across. And so they write in this clear and direct fashion. And then when they write for their academic essays, suddenly there's all these really big words and really long sentences and really difficult uh, grammatical constructions that cause me to struggle to understand what they're trying to say, even when I am perfectly familiar with the subject matter they're writing about. They can be summarizing a text that I've read many, many times, and I'll still stop and look at it and go, I'm not sure what you're referencing here. And yet I know that the student is capable of great clarity, of being direct, of being able to communicate well. Why is it that when we write in just about every rhetorical situation, uh, we write clearly. And then when we go to write an academic essay, we suddenly think that it's this uh, new world, this this space that we've, you know, we, we don't know what we're doing here. And, and we try to, you know, emulate some concept of what we think academic writing is. Now, I've got a book here called uh, Style, Lessons in Clarity and Grace by Joseph M. Williams and Joseph Bitsup. And uh, even though we're looking at chapter nine of They Say, I Say, titled, You Mean I Can Just Say It That Way? Academic writing doesn't always mean setting aside your own voice. I wanted to take a moment to see what uh, this book by Williams and Beatsup style has to say about this gulf, what's going on in why we write in this way. So I think Bishop and Williams think that part of it is that we read the way that academic writers write, and then we think that we need to emulate that. And they talk about the history of academic writing and how it has an awful lot to do with uh, obscuring uh, our ideas as opposed to revealing them. Generations of students, write Williams and Beatsup, generations of students have struggled with dense writing, many thinking they weren't smart enough to grasp a writer's big or deep ideas. And I know that I personally have experienced this, that I remember reading French theorists, for example, or really great uh, theorists in comparative literature, uh, and I would be like, I don't understand what's being said here. And my profs would tell me there's a really great idea in here. And I'm like, yeah, if only I, I could find it. Um, and sometimes we're right that it's, it's on us. We can't grasp the writer's deep ideas. But Williams and Beesop say that more of us probably could have blamed the writer's inability or refusal 
to write clearly. I think refusal is a good word there. I think that there are a lot of academics who think that, you know, if they write in this obscurant way, what they're writing is brilliant, when really what they're doing is they're taking relatively simple or accessible ideas, even if they're not simple, they can be complex but accessible, and then turning them into something that is needlessly complicated as opposed to complex and inaccessible. Many students, sad to say, give up. Sadder still, others learn not only to read that style, but to write it, inflicting it in turn on their readers, thereby sustaining a 450-year-old tradition of unreadable writing. And consequently, going to Graf and Birkenstein, and they say, I say, we get some impressions about what it means to write well in university. And these can be uh, s- summarized as these these three you know, big areas, big words, long sentences, and complex sentence structures. Now, in and of themselves, none of these things are bad. If you're going to use a big word, like ontological, if you're writing about secondary worlds in fantasy literature, you might use the term ontological. If you're in a course on film studies, you're going to talk about diegetic and non-diegetic uh, areas of, of, of film. Um, and those are, those are particular terms for certain disciplines. And it is important to use precise terms within our discipline, so long as we know that our audience understands that discipline. If we're writing for other experts, then big words aren't necessarily a bad thing. But if we're using big words just to be impressive, then we're probably going about it the wrong way. Long sentences, right, in and of themselves, not a bad thing. If we need a long sentence to encompass all of the ideas that we're writing about, then by all means, use one. But if all of our sentences are long simply to impress, then that's a problem, as is a complex sentence structure. I see many of my students struggling with complex sentence structures, and I often suggest to them, just write simple sentences until you get that one down, and then you can move on to complex sentence structures. It's a little bit like you're, you know, you step onto the basketball court for the first time ever, and you decide that you're going to dribble the ball while looking at the, you know, looking up all the way down the court uh, and and dodging around people, and then you're going to do an amazing layup and slam dunk the ball the first time you've ever been on the course, right? Or uh, on the on the court. Or, you know, just that, you know, maybe you played basketball when you were in grade five or six, and then you get to high school and you decide that you're going to be a superstar. It's a ridiculous idea. It's like there's there's a baby steps thing going on here. Never mind that doing all that complicated stuff probably isn't as smart as dribbling a little way and passing the ball to one of your teammates. Shorter sentences are in some ways analogous, that we're passing the ball frequently rather than trying to make it go all the way down the court. Let's read a little bit more from Beatsup and Williams. Unclear writing is a social problem, but it often has private causes. Michael Crichton, he's the guy who wrote Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton mentioned one. Some writers plump up their prose, hoping that complicated sentences indicate deep thought. And they can. And when we want to hide the fact that we don't know what we're talking about, we typically throw up a tangle of abstract words in long, complex sentences. So while, you know, it just might be an assumption that maybe the, the, this is the way that we're supposed to write for the university, I think it's also 
equally true that we learn somewhere along the way that if we write complex sentences, uh, if we make those sentences really long, and if we throw in a bunch of big words, we'll sometimes get a really good grade. And, you know, here's, here's a sad truth is that sometimes the teaching assistant or the prof who's reading your stuff isn't reading it as deeply as they should. And your big words and your long sentences and your complex sentence structures will sneak past them. They'll be like, wow, big words, complex sentence structures, long sentences must be smart. Let's give them an I don't know, an A or an A minus or a B plus, but it's in the upper range because big words. But if the prof takes the time, as any good professor will do, to really take a look at what you've said, they're going to see that a lot of your sentences and your big words don't add up to much. I have been able to break down paragraph length structures into these movies are different. And that's really all the students said. These movies are different, but they did it with big words. They did it with long sentences. They did it with complex sentence structures. And so they're able to give it this appearance of genius, but it hasn't really said anything. Now, if our only goal is to get through university and get a grade and move on to the rest of our life, then we can probably get by with this sort of bullshittery. There's really no other technical term for it. The trouble is, is if we get into a course with a prof with a really good BS meter, they're going to detect that and it's going to hurt our grades. But worse yet, we're, going to, we're just going to keep writing with bad habits, And we're going to take those bad habits into the work world. And once we're there, we're not going to be able to communicate well with our colleagues. And being able to communicate well in the work world isn't just about communicating with colleagues. Sometimes it's about getting promotions and finding out that great writing is a skill set that the work world is sorely lacking in. And so, you know, I can say from my own personal experience, and I know this from other people who uh, work in corporate or government uh, spaces, that good writers, good writers are in demand. They are in demand. So we want to be good writers, not just pretentious writers. So instead of big words, long sentences, complex sentence structures, let's replace it with the idea that academic writing can be, and I cross out can and throw in should. I think it should be. I think it should be relaxed. I think it should be easy to follow. And ultimately, I think it should even be a little fun. Now, that's Graf and Birkenstein, but I agree with them wholeheartedly. I mean, I remember when I read They Say, I Say for the first time, I was like, ah, kindred spirits, these are my people, this is my tribe, because I was working on my dissertation. And for those of you who don't know what a dissertation is, it is the gigantic paper that you write if you're doing a doctorate, a PhD. It's anywhere from 250 to 350 pages long. It can be longer than that, although most of the time they don't want you to do that. But it's big. And trying to figure out how I was going to write that much text and hold the argument together was daunting to me. And then I started teaching They Say, I Say. I was actually forced originally. Uh, one of my first jobs at McEwen, just here, here's They Say, I Say, make sure you're teaching it. And I was like, okay. And those ideas came at just the perfect time because there I was working on this gigantic paper. Well, Graf and Birkenstein saying that things should be relaxed. It should be easy to follow, even a bit fun. That was my normal mode of writing. That was how I normally wrote before I started writing academic papers and did my master's thesis. 
And I remember in at the end of my dissertation, and at the end of any dissertation, you have to do what's called a defense. You go and you sit in a room with the people who advised you during your dissertation, and they grill you about what you've said. Imagine finishing a paper, and instead of just being done with it, you have to go sit in your prof's office, and they, they, they grill you about it. Here on this page, you said such and such. What did you mean exactly by that? That's what it's like. And... I remember my advisors saying, this isn't particularly academic in tone. You often have what's called an outside reader in this process as well. Someone who has never laid eyes on you, never spoken to you in your life, but is in the area of expertise. And they, they, they are sent your, your dissertation and, and, and then they read it and they give you feedback and they don't have to care about you because they don't, they don't, they don't know you. And my outside reader said that, my dissertation was one of the most enjoyable PhD uh, papers that she'd, she'd ever had the pleasure to read. And I thought that, that that's a compliment between my advisors saying this wasn't academic enough and this person saying, I really enjoyed it and I even laughed a bit. And I thought, now, that's that should be the goal. That should be the goal, right? Like, obviously, we want to be able to give good information, Obviously, information trumps everything else. I say this to students when I talk about titles. Titles should be informative and interesting, but so should papers. But so informative first. We, we got to have that information there. I mean, if, if your paper is nothing but flair and style, well, all style, no substance is not going to get the grade in university. So by all means, we want to be relaxed, easy to follow, and even a bit fun. But it shouldn't just be that. We have to remember all the chapters that came before chapter nine, and they say, I say. And they were all about hearing what others say and making sure that information is in there. But if our paper is informative, then as we go to revise, we can revise it for more relaxed language. We can revise it to make it more easy to follow. Chapter eight of They Say, I Say, connecting the parts, right? And then we can, we can gussy it up with a little bit of interesting content, especially for our introduction and our conclusion. But we go for interesting second, right? Because if it's just interesting, it's clickbait. If it's just interesting, if our title is just interesting, it's clickbait. If it's informative and interesting, then that's good because then it guides our reader into our writing. And likewise, once they're in the writing, everything that's in there should be that combination of informative and interesting. Informative and interesting. There's this false... It's it's a lie. It's a running around academia that... The presence of difficulty, which we will often say is rigor. Academics love the word rigor. Rigor. It wasn't rigorous enough. So we say, this is, this needs, there needs to be rigor. It means it needs to be hard. Now, I think that that's important if for no other reason than we've learned that uh, if you make things too easy in education, it doesn't stick in the reader's mind. Uh, difficult tasks tend to stick better. And we actually find, as a species, we find difficult work more rewarding than super easy work. We like to tackle challenges. People who play video games should know this because you voluntarily go and do difficult things. I'm quoting, or I should say I'm paraphrasing um, McGonagall. I'm forgetting her her full name right now, but she wrote a book called um, Reality is Broken. And she talks about how video game people do difficult tasks out of, like, just desire to do so. And she speaks a lot about how 
Um, we've learned in psychology that that difficult doesn't equal um, a lack of pleasure, that we will we will engage in difficult tasks and we will enjoy them. But there the the again, it's just like complex sentence structures, long sentences, big words. The presence of rigor does not guarantee that it's good. And so when academics read other academics, and when I think we write for other academics, we make the mistake of assuming that if it's super, super difficult and the person on the other end has to scrunch up their face while they're reading it and it's painful for them, then that must have been a good academic article. And I just want to say I'm all done with that. As an academic, I don't do it anymore. I'm not playing that game. I played it for a few years. Some of my academic articles are a little dense, difficult to read, uh, by no means super dense and difficult to read. I never gave in completely, but I'm just at the point where I'm like, no, no, and no, I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm not writing in this way. It doesn't share information with the world. And I don't want my students to learn this because when they get out into the world, no one wants them to write that way unless they work for a law firm. Um, because legal language is one of the most dense and difficult forms of <laughs> language that exists. Uh, but when we're writing for academia, when we're writing for our essays, Let's go for relaxed. Let's go for easy to follow. Let's go for even a bit fun. Unless you can tell that your prof is a not relaxed, like super tense, right? <laughs> if your prof is difficult to follow uh, in their lectures, uh, and if they are the utter opposite of fun, then you might want to go, mm, this might not be the right course <laughs> to, to follow what Dr. Prashan was telling us about. You might, you want to evaluate those things. We always want to evaluate the right time for the, you know, is this the right rhetorical situation? Is this the right rhetorical situation for this type of writing? Uh, which always makes me think of Joey Tribbiani from the classic, uh, sitcom Friends, uh, when he was writing a speech, uh, Toast to the Bride and the Groom, um, and he used a thesaurus, uh, for the whole thing, for every word in it. Right. And Monica, Monica, who's the she's going to be toasted as the bride says, all right, what was this sentence originally? And Joey says, oh, they are warm, nice people with big hearts. And Chandler, who's going to be the groom, says, and that became they are humid, prepossessing homo sapiens with full sized aortic pumps. To which Joey replies, yeah, yeah. And hey, I really mean it, dude. Humid, prepossessing homo sapiens with full-sized aortic pumps. There's actually no occasion where that would be the right way to write. <laughs> but it's indicative of the difference between giving a speech at a wedding and writing in technical terms. You're writing a speech for a wedding, you want to say they're warm, nice people with big hearts. You're writing for a technical journal, you would want to talk about aortic pumps, depending on, you know, the discipline that you're writing in. You might use a word like prepossessing. You might use the term homo sapiens instead of humans. But you always want to assess the rhetorical situation that you're working in. Graf and Birkenstein say that relaxed colloquial language, when we use the term colloquial right there, there's one of those big words. Do I know what it means? Um, we should never shy away from expanding our vocabulary, but at the same time, assess your audience. Colloquial language is the language that we use every day. 
slang is colloquial. Uh, a lot of, you know, communicating in memes would be considered colloquial. And Graf and Birkenstein believe that relaxed colloquial language can often enliven academic writing and even enhance its rigor and precision. I agree with this because C.S. Lewis, the guy who invented Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, said that he believed that graduates from... Um, seminary, the, the, the sort of PhD of pastors, priests, vicars, etc., the clergy, um, that their, that their final exam before they got to go and work with the people should have been to take a really dense and difficult theological concept, some concept about how the universe works in a religious sense that they can talk about how many, you know, angels dance on the, 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 head of a pin or whatever, tip of a pin. Um, and they should be able to take that and turn it into the language of the people. They should take, and, and I would say that that's true for everybody. I don't actually think that a PhD dissertation should be dense, difficult, and academic. I think that the, the very last thing that you should be tested for in a PhD is your ability to take that dense and difficult concept and translate it into relaxed and colloquial language. Because when you go to teach the people who will be hearing you, will need you to be able to do that. But I also believe that for my students because I believe in education that is shared. And if you can't take the ideas that you learn in university and write about them in ways that are accessible to people who aren't, then what good is the education you're getting? It's all like, look at me with my smart ideas over here and you without them. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible way of going about learning and expressing that learning. If we express it in a sort of um, exclusionary, elitist, elitist way, uh, then we're, we're, not, we're not giving back to the society that gives us so many things uh, in the meantime. I mean, you know, society is communal. And I, and I think that, you know, if we can take a rigorous concept and translate it into relaxed and colloquial language, then we're really showing that we understand it. It's like what I've said throughout this entire course. If you can take somebody else's dense and difficult ideas and summarize them in an accessible way, you're demonstrating mastery of the content. But the same is true, not just when you're summarizing, but when you're writing about anything. If you can take it and you can make it accessible to people who are not part of the academic project, you are demonstrating mastery in a way that's simply parroting obscuring the, this obscurant, um, pretentious prose will never do. Like we, if we parrot the big words and parrot the long sentences and parrot the complex sentence structures, we aren't really showing that we understand a concept, but when we can tell someone what diegetic and non-diegetic, for example, mean outside of academia, then we, we are demonstrating that we know what those terms mean. If, if a film study student just keeps barking out diegetic and non-diegetic, I'm like, mm. now, now explain to somebody at a party over drinks what those things mean and what they mean. I'm sure that some of you are now going, oh, so what do they mean? Um, diegetic is what happens inside the world of the film. Characters can hear diegetic sounds. Um, but they do not hear non-diegetic sounds. Diegetic sounds would be an explosion uh, in the movie that the characters are there to witness and you know be impacted by. Whereas the soundtrack, the music that led up to that, uh, 
is non-diegetic. So that's what those terms mean. And if you can't explain it in relaxed colloquial language, I'd argue you don't really know it. Many successful writers, Graf and Birkenstein say, blend academic professional language with popular expressions and sayings. Be real careful with this stuff, folks. Very few academic teacher, uh, uh, very few profs want popular expressions and sayings. I don't mind them. I use them all the time. Now, when we think about how to write, it's always about evaluation. I'm always telling my students, to write is to evaluate. And I don't want you to walk away from this video, because some of you aren't even my students and I can't control you once you leave this YouTube video. I can't control my students anyway. I don't know why I'm saying it like I can. But my students will hear a thing and they think, ah, the 12th commandment of writing right after never use the pronoun I or always write five paragraphs. They think that writing is something that you learn like 10 rules for and then you never have to grow again. You never have to learn anything else. No, no, no. We are always growing as writers. Um, and Graf and Birkenstein say, because there are so many options in writing, you should never feel limited in your choice of words, as if such choices are set in stone. You can always dress it up, dress it down, or some combination of both. But you have to assess your audience. Writing is, is always about evaluation. I can't... Students are like, can you show us an example? No, I'm not going to show you an example because the second I give you a template, you think that's the way that you do it until the end of time. And that's not writing. That's not evaluation. So you evaluate when it's time to dress it up, dress it down, or some combination of both. It's literally like getting dressed you know, for going out. What do I wear? Is it formal? Is it semi-formal? Is it casual? Is it pajama day at school? Now, in the past, and I've got the... <laughs> ah, I made a mistake here. Although it, it, although it may have been in the pat, it says on my slide. <laughs> although it may have been in the past, academic writing in most disciplines is no longer the linguistic equivalent of a black tie affair. But you should know if your prof is all black tie. Or if your prof is like, nah, let's dress it up. Let's be cool. Let's wear something funky, right? It's like what I said in my lecture on introductions and conclusions. If your prof wants toast, give them toast. Dry, tasteless toast. I like my toast with jam or peanut butter or cream cheese with this like really nice fiery. Anyway, I'm the same way with prose. I'm the same, I want to, I, when, I, when I talk about dressing it up, right, dressing it down, I want a mix of those things. So maybe you did go to the black tie affair, but your bow tie is, got sparkles. I don't know. There's some flair there. There's something that just stands out and says, this is me. And this is, again, why I won't give my students templates I give them the templates of they say, I say, because those are like sentence long templates, but I'm not going to give them an entire essay. Uh, you know, could you just show us an example of what this looks like? No, because then I won't know what your voice is. You'll write like this one student. I'll give you that example and you go, that's what Dr. Prashan wants. So here I go. Watch me parrot this. No, I don't want you parroting anybody. I want you to learn from other people. I've, I've said this before, that learning to write well is a little bit like, now, when I first started playing bass, I started noticing bass players. 
up until then, it was just music. And I think that's how we are when we read, too, right? When we read, we just read. We read for information. We read for pleasure. We read to find out what happens in fiction. We read to find out, you know, we read for comprehension. But we don't pay attention to the way other people write for style. And we should. Because as we are cultivating our own voice, we ought to be paying attention to other people's voices, which is me standing in the crowd after I learned, to, like I start started playing bass. Eyes locked on the bass player. What's the bass player doing? What's that cool new, new thing that they're employing? I've never seen a bass player do that before. I'm going to try that when I get home. And sometimes it fit with the songs I was writing and my bandmates were writing. Sometimes it fit. But let's face it, there are certain styles of music that certain types of bass playing don't work for. I mean, classic Metallica was all about downpicking. Right? But if you're going to play funk, you don't want to be constantly downpicking. You got to be ready to do a little pop, a little slap, a little smooth. And when we're writing, we got to be able to evaluate what's the right voice for this moment? What's the right voice? Is it casual? Is it formal? Is it a mix of both? Is it a mix of all these things? We bring it all to the table and we evaluate to create the best arguments that we can in a way that is ultimately accessible to the audience we are writing for. <laughs> 